Well, last week we finally reached the end of 1 Peter. So tonight we're going to look at 1 Peter. There's no, no escape. But don't worry, I'm not going back to the beginning and starting all over again. Uh, but I did think it might be helpful to attempt uh, an overview of, of, the, of the whole letter. Um, Chris did that when we got to the end of Hebrews, didn't we? And it was a, a very useful exercise to have that sort of recap, an overview. But of course, for me, this is quite a challenge um, to try and cover the whole letter in, in one go. Um, broad brush, big picture stuff isn't my forte. So um, uh, I'm, I, I really have struggled with knowing how to go about doing it, but I, I'm sure there's great value in stepping back and taking a wider view. And now to do that, of course, um, we, we need to be selective. So there's going to be lots of important stuff that I won't mention and I won't cover. And that will grieve me greatly, but at least I know I've done it once. <laughs> but uh, that's the challenge I was confronted with, and I, I really wasn't sure how to go about uh, attempting such a, such a task. Um, I started by identifying what I thought were the, um, the, the most significant words that crop up in, in Peter's letter, and then seeing how often they each occur. I, I didn't do a word count for, for, for every, every word in the letter, and, and I limited myself to the ESV, but I, I did that exercise, and it was quite instructive. So I now know that God occurs 42 times in 1 Peter. Christ, 24 times. Uh, suffers, suffered, or suffering, 20 times. So that's up there with Christ, almost. Um, glory ten times, grace eight, hope six, one another six, submit stroke submissive six, uh, belief five, faith five, salvation four. So that gives a, a flavour for, for what the letter might be about and, and what's included there. But then I notice that Peter uses the word therefore five times. And I thought, hmm, could that provide a basis for a, a way of overviewing the letter. But then um, I realised that, that there's a, an important therefore in chapter 1, uh, but the others are all clustered together in chapters 4 and 5. So I thought perhaps that doesn't offer a very balanced approach to summarising the letter. But then as I was considering the various themes and topics, um, it struck me that many of them begin with S. So it was very tempting uh, to let alliteration be my guide in deciding what to include. Um, but then I found myself thinking that there ought to be a more structured approach, approach rather than just a, a series of, of, of topics that occur. So I felt the best starting point would be to recognise why Peter was writing the letter, what was his purpose, and then to see how he went about accomplishing that purpose. So what was his purpose? Well, I think we can sum it up as being to encourage perseverance. Why did he need to do that? Well, it's clear that he was writing to believers in a number of churches throughout Asia Minor, and they were suffering, that they were struggling because they were surrounded by 
a predominantly pagan culture. Those round about them were opposed to them. Those round about them didn't approve of them. And the specifics might change, but that's really the situation that surrounds uh, believers in all ages, doesn't it? We're, We're always confronted by that resistance, that rejection, that lack of acceptance. So really uh, we, we contend with much the same uh, same today, don't we? And therefore the, the letter is very relevant to us today. So we'll start by seeing what Peter says about the problems that necessitate perseverance uh, and then we'll consider Peter's prescription for perseverance. Uh, the problems that necessitate perseverance um, in, in other words, by that I mean those things about being a Christian that make it difficult to continue in the faith. The things that mean that the Christian life is not plain sailing. The things that mean that the Christian faith is something that you have to work hard at, at persevering in. And I think we can summarise uh, the, the, the things that Peter mentions as the problems as being what we are in this world and what we experience in this world. So on what we are in this world, you'll see from your sheets that um, it's a fairly complicated structure tonight. Um, I suppose inevitable because I'm trying to cover the, the whole thing, but hopefully you won't get too confused by where I'm, I'm going along the way. So what we are in this world, Peter describes us as sojourners. Um, right at the beginning of the letter, he says uh, that his readers are elect exiles of the dispersion. And what is that saying about what we are in this world? Well, we need to be clear uh, on what, what is meant by exiles there. Um, I think most versions are a bit misleading. The, the ESV uses exiles, and that's a word that really speaks of people who have been forced away from their homes. They've been banished from their homes. So, um, you know, the history books would tell you that Napoleon w- was exiled to the island of Elba, uh, and then later uh, St Helena. So it means that he was, he was forced out of his homeland and was never intended to come back. He was, he was exiled. Um, well, that isn't the sense of the Greek word that's used here. The New King James Version says pilgrims. And that suggests people on a journey, doesn't it? Pilgrims who are on, on a journey to a, a, a specific destination for a specific purpose. Um, think of Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, for instance. Um, describes the Christian life in terms of a journey. And it's certainly helpful to think of the Christian life uh, in that way. Um, But again, that's not the sense of the Greek word here either. The NIV has strangers. Uh, In some ways, that's perhaps better than exiles or pilgrims. But I think it can still be a little bit misleading. Um, You know, it gives the uh, could give the impression that, that we are people who are complete strangers. We have nothing to do with, with those round about us. We don't know those round about us. There's, there's no real contact or, or relationship with those that we live among. 
Um, so I don't think any of those words fully capture the sense of the Greek word. Now, I don't know if you've ever flown to the United States, but, but if you have, you'll know that be- before touchdown, you have to fill in a landing card and you have to tick a box to indicate which one of three categories is true of you. Uh, and the first one is something like American National. So you don't do that one. Uh, the last one is Visitor, which is usually the one you do. But the other one is Resident Alien. And that always amuses me. You know, I, I look around at the other passengers and try, try and spot the alien. <laughs> Resident alien, I think it's a, it's a wonderful term, and yet, in a sense, that very much captures the meaning of the Greek word. Uh, we are resident aliens. It refers to people who are, are living away from their true home, um, that they're not fully fledged, born and bred citizens of where they are, but neither are they they're just visiting for a short time. Uh, is well expressed in that, that word sojourners. It's, it's a, that's a fairly quaint word. You don't hear people using it much nowadays. But that really does sum up what we are. In fact, the ESV uses that word in 1 Peter 2.11, where it says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. So the fact is that we are different from the surrounding society and its culture. We don't fit comfortably. Uh, even though we're here for, for the rest of our lives, um, but the fact is that our true citizenship is elsewhere. Our, our citizenship is in heaven. And we are looking forward to that inheritance that, that is to be ours. The old Negro spiritual attempted to convey that idea by saying, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. Uh, And that clearly expresses the fact that this world is not our lasting home. um, But it could also give the impression... um, It it could give the impression that we're, if you like, having much to do with it while we're here. Um, It gives the impression that our priority is just to get through it as quickly as possible. Uh, And that's that's not the case. uh, Yeah, because... Uncomfortable as it might be in, in many ways, we are here for a purpose. You know, there is a reason that God doesn't just whisk us straight off to heaven as soon as we're converted. He, he wants us to be here. Uh, we, we are to interact with those round about us. Uh, you know, referring us to, to, uh, to us as sojourners and exiles, it's a bit akin to Jesus when he speaks about us being not of the world we're not of the world we're not the same as those round about us but nonetheless Jesus was also at pains to to say that we are in the world and he wanted us to remain in the world and he wanted us to remain in the world because there's a purpose for being here so Peter says we are to be uh, uh, among them you, you see, um, you know, Jesus said he wanted us to remain in the world. And Peter said in chapter 2, verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable. He's very much echoing what, uh, what, what Jesus was saying in, in saying that we're not of the world. 
Why are we to remain in the world? Well, Peter went on to say, it's so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Why are we in the world? Well, to use that awful expression, you could say we're in it to win it. Not, not that we're winning it for ourselves, but we're, we're to win it for God. We're to win it for, for God's glory. Now, how does being told that we're sojourners in this world help us and encourage us? Well, it means that we won't be surprised by what the world throws at us. Forewarned is forearmed. So that leads us on to what we experience in this world. And we'll just uh, briefly pick up on three things that, that Peter mentions. Firstly, we experience suffering. Um, time constraints prevent us from considering all of the references to, to suffering uh, yeah, as it is a very prominent theme in the letter. I think I said there were 20 odd references to suffering. But as early as uh, chapter 1 verse 6, Peter speaks of being grieved by various trials. And in chapter 2, 19 to 20, he says, For this is a gracious thing, we're mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure but if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. And so it continues right through to the end of the letter there in chapter 5, uh, 9 and 10. He says, resist him firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. So suffice it to say that Peter makes it very clear that suffering is par for the course for believers. So we don't allow ourselves, not to allow ourselves to be discouraged by sufferings. Why? Well, because our Saviour suffered. Um, It's interesting, throughout Peter, as I say, I think suffering is mentioned uh, about 20 times, and roughly half of those is referring to our suffering, and the other half are referring to Jesus' suffering. So it's constantly showing us that, that Jesus suffered. Um, at the beginning of, of the letter, chapter 1, 10 to 11, he said, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what personal time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. That's a lovely term, subsequent glories. So suffering, yes, but it leads to uh, subsequent glories. You see, Christ would suffer, but his suffering would lead to subsequent glories. And when we suffer, we we do do so confident uh, of the glories to come. In 1 Peter 2.21 we read, For this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his steps. So when we suffer, we're we're following Christ's example. We're following in his footsteps. And knowing that, and knowing that it leads to glory, means that suffering shouldn't be a discouragement. In chapter 4, 12 to 13, 
Uh, He said, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. So you see, far from being discouraging, suffering for the sake of Christ is a cause for rejoicing. We're sharing with him in his sufferings. Second thing that uh, Peter mentions that we can expect to experience is slander. Uh, In chapter 2.12, he speaks of those who speak against you as evildoers. And then in uh, in 3 verse 16, he says, having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behaviour in Christ may be put to shame. You notice, he doesn't say if you're slandered, no, it's when you're slandered. There's a, an inevitability about it. I mean, in what way might we be slandered? Well, he speaks of those who revile your good behaviour in Christ. So the, the idea is of that which is good and, and wholesome and commendable being, being mocked, being belittled, being dismissed. And, and that, can be, that can be hard to take, can't it? That can be discouraging. But when we follow the example of Jesus, um, we're to follow the example of Jesus. I'm speaking of Jesus, Peter said there in chapter 2, verse uh, 23. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. So slander should not Uh, discourage us or or prompt us to defend our reputation by retaliating but rather we're to trust in God confident that he knows the truth of the matter he will judge accordingly we're to follow Christ's example and thirdly we experience satanic attack we considered that quite recently in in chapter 5 verse 8 your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. So suffice it to say that we have a powerful enemy who is out to get us, but we mustn't allow ourselves to be intimidated by him. Uh, as James says in, in James 4 verse 7, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we're... we're Confronted with all of these hardships, all of these things that make the Christian life difficult, or all these things that mean we really do have to persevere and work at it. But then let's move on to Peter's uh, prescription for perseverance. And it really consists of recognising what we are in Christ and realising what we are to do in this world so what we are in Christ um, we'll note three things that that Peter mentions that that should help us to persevere in the face of of hardships Um, firstly we are salvation's heirs Um, this is really the first thing he talks about after the introduction to the letter this is the first thing he mentions I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word salvation Um, probably most commonly people think of it as being 
what's happened to someone when they have come to faith in Christ. And others with perhaps a, a broader, fuller understanding would say, well, yes, it, it includes that, um, but, but as well as that, there's also a sense in which salvation is happening to us now, throughout our lives. It's something that's happening to the believer in the present. And it's also something that will happen in the future. So we're saved, uh, we're being saved, and we will be saved. I, I find it helpful to think of salvation as being a kind of umbrella term for all that God has done in order to save us, starting with electing us in eternity past and continuing right through all the necessary steps to glorifying us in eternity in the future. That that whole whole gamut is salvation from, from beginning to end. Now having said that, Peter tends to use the word salvation in his own specific way. Uh, in, in 1 Peter 1 verse 5, he speaks of being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In verse 9, he speaks of obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Um, so he made it clear that this salvation will be at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So Peter thinks of salvation as a, a future, uh, end-time culmination, if you like. Uh, to, to use the big word, he thinks of it in eschatological terms. There you are, a big word that doesn't end in shun. Uh, he, he mentions it again in, in 1 Peter 2, verse 2, where he says, like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation. Again, there's that future feel to it, isn't it? Uh, our growth now is leading to our ultimate salvation. So Peter senses, uh, uses salvation in, in that ultimate sense. But he made it very clear that it was God who took the initiative in making salvation possible, in that he gave Jesus to die and to be raised from the dead. And he elaborates on that uh, at several points throughout the letter. So in 1 Peter 2, 18 to 20, he said, uh, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb, without blemish or spot. Or then in chapter 2, verse 18, he said, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. And in chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. So you see this, this salvation, it's accomplished by Jesus taking our place and offering himself as a sacrifice for our sins. And it was God who planned that, purposed that, initiated that. It's God who took the initiative 
in bringing that about. But you see, Peter also made it clear that God took the initiative in making us enter into that salvation because he he chose us individually in eternity but then in due course he caused us to be born again to a living hope as individuals Uh, and without that well Christ dying on the cross does nothing for us we have to enter into it and we enter into it by God giving us new life causing us to be born again Peter describes uh, the believer's sure hope uh, of salvation as being an inheritance and again this is end time isn't it you don't get an inheritance until you get to the end of something and that's why I described uh, what we are as salvation's heirs Uh, and because this is all God's doing well then the believer's inheritance uh, is absolutely certain Peter described it as an inheritance that that is undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's grace are being guarded through faith. What an incredible encouragement for every suffering believer. That the inheritance is sure. It's there. God's keeping it. And not only is he keeping the inheritance for us, but he's guarding us for the inheritance. We might be living in this world facing suffering, facing opposition, but God's guarding us. He's going to bring us through it, and we will actually reach the point uh, at which we receive that inheritance. Secondly, Peter says that we are a spiritual house. There in chapter 2, 4 to 5, he said, As you come to him, that's Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So here he's describing those born-again heirs of salvation as being living stones. Being living stones. He says that those individual stones are then being built up as a spiritual house. And that immediately tells us that we don't remain uh, as separate individuals. Connections are made. There's a uniting, there's a joining together that takes place. So as we face suffering for Christ's sake, that there's encouragement in knowing that we're not alone. We, we do it together. We, we face it together. But you see, there's much more to it than just safety in numbers. Because we're not merely being built up. It's not just that we're being brought together. Uh, no, we're being built up as a spiritual house. Uh, and that's a way of speaking of, of, of the temple or of the house of God which speaks of God's, God's dwelling place. It's the place where God is especially present. So God's not only with us, but he's actually among us. He's within us. So what a, an encouragement that is when faced with opposition and suffering. You know, we, we don't just have God on our side. We have God in us. We have God with us. And one more thing to note about this uh, spiritual house um, 
is that we are being built. Uh, you, you sometimes see signs, don't you, saying uh, building work will commence here on such and such a date, and then several years later nothing's happened, and sometimes nothing ever does happen. But you see that sort of thing. But you see, Peter doesn't say that this building is yet to start, but neither does he say the building is already completed. He uses the the present continuous tense in saying that we are being built. So the work has begun. Something momentous has has happened. You're born again, you're a new person. And and we're being built together into this temple. That's tremendous and that's started. And it's an ongoing process, it's happening. Um, But you see, God's temple project or or God's spiritual house project is very much a work in process Uh, but there's encouragement for us in in recognising that firstly we are encouraged by the fact that it started, it's happening something has begun but there's also encouragement in, in knowing that it's not yet complete so when we look around and we see all the things that we're not too happy with, the things that leave a lot to be desired, we, can, we, we don't have to get too upset by that either because we're not finished yet. That'll be sorted out. We'll, we'll get there. So we, we should be able to be encouraged uh, as we look around the situation as it is now. We know work has begun. We know that work will continue. We know that that work will be brought to completion. So we, we look to God and, and we trust in him. Yeah, we'll be open to all sorts of criticism and contradiction, but we can take heart that it's being dealt with because the work of building us together is ongoing and will eventually be completed. Thirdly, we are saints. Now, Peter doesn't actually mention the word saints, um, but it is what he sees us as being. Um, we touched on this a little bit on on Wednesday night in the Otley Life Group. Um, saint means sanctified one, and you know, we often think in terms of, of sanctification as being the process by which we become increasingly godly or increasingly holy in in our living. Uh, and certainly, the Bible does use the word uh, in that sense. But most often, when it uses the word sanctified, it's using it to to mean having been set apart for God's use, or belonging to God, or being special to God. And that's what Peter says is true of us as believers in Christ, so we are saints. Um, In chapter 2, 9 to 10, he said that you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellences of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Now, there's an awful lot in, in those verses, but for tonight, just note that Peter says we are sanctified in that we belong to God. We are a people for his own possession. 
uh, and then he says that we are God's people. Well, if we belong to the almighty, sovereign God, what confidence we should have in the face of suffering. Now, having seen what we are in Christ, um, let's next consider what we are to do in this world. As we've uh, gone through Peter's letter, we've seen a, a lot of imperatives. Uh, time and time again, Peter tells us what to do. And they're not exactly commands, um, rather these are they're indications of, of how we should live in this world as a consequence of what we are in Christ. So the, the, the first uh, first thing to mention is that we are to show what we are. You know, we've seen that we're saints in the sense that we're set apart from God. Um, in that sense, we're holy in our standing before God. But that, that could sound a bit theoretical, couldn't it? But, but in 1 Peter 1, 14 to 16, he says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. In other words, we, what we are to, what we are to be is to be seen in what we do. You know, we are holy because we belong to God. And that's got to be manifest in the, the way we live. That's to be manifest in our conduct. We're to live in a way that's consistent with what we are as the people of God. Uh, and what is holy conduct? Well, it, ha- it has a positive and a, a negative aspect. In 1 Peter 2.12, he said, Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So, so positively, holy conduct includes good deeds that bring glory to God. But then just before that, in verse 11, he said, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage against wage war against your soul. So, so negatively, holy conduct includes abstaining from sinful behaviour that, that doesn't bring glory to God. So we're, we're to show what we are by the way in which we live godly lives. Secondly, we're to submit to authorities. Um, Peter places a lot of emphasis on us being those who are submissive. And that's uh, very countercultural, isn't it? Uh, we live in a, an assertive, me-first society, don't we? we you know, it's a look-after-number-one society. It's a stand-up-for-my-rights society. And that's a far cry from what Peter expects believers to be like. In chapters 2, 13 and 14, he said, Be subject, therefore, uh, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. And then in verse 18 of chapter 2, he said, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. 
And then in chapter 3, verse 1, Likewise, wives, be subject to your own husbands. And then in chapter 5, verse 5, he said, Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. So time and time again, we've got this idea of being subject to those who have some form of authority. Now, the ESV repeatedly says, be subject to, and I think that gives a very misleading uh, impression. It sounds as though we're being forcefully downtrodden. We're to just allow ourselves to be be trampled all over and be downtrodden. Um, I think the NIV is, is better... Uh, in saying uh, either submit or or be submissive, the, the idea is of of willingly humbling ourselves under the authority of another, whether it be civil authorities, employers, husbands, leaders. It speaks of of a humble, non self assertive disposition, which all really stems from what Peter says in. Chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he might exalt you. We don't exalt ourselves now, because we know there's a proper time for that. And when that proper time comes, God will do it. In the meantime, we, we, are, we are humble. We are we're glad to be submissive. That's to be our disposition. But we're not only to be submissive to those in authority, but we're also to be submissive to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, And so thirdly, we are to serve one another. We were told to do that in chapter 4, verse 10, where uh, Peter said, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Uh, same ideas expressed slightly differently in chapter 1 verse uh, 22 where he said having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love love one another earnestly from a pure heart again in chapter 4 verse 8 above all keep loving one another earnestly you see in those two two words where it speaks of loving one another well the word that's been translated as love there it's it's agape so it's that, that selfless, sacrificial, uh, serving love that Jesus so perfectly exemplified. You know, in practical terms, how are we to serve one another and express that brotherly love? Well, Peter does offer a few examples. In chapter 4, verse 9, he said, Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. Uh, in chapter 5, verse 5, he said, Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility towards one another. And then in chapter 5, verse 14, we read, greet one another with the kiss of love. So in various ways, we are to show that, that submissiveness before our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're not to put ourselves first. We're to put them before us. Fifthly, fifthly and finally, uh, the last thing to mention that really sums up the whole letter in many ways Despite suffering and slander and satanic attacks uh, in this world, we are to stand firm in hope. Read there in uh, chapter 5, end of verse 12. I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. So we're to stand firm in 
the grace of God. And we can do that because we have a hope. Not a, not a wishful thinking sort of hope, but something much more wonderful. So in, in chapter 1 verse 3 he said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. We've already touched on that. But two, a living hope. So you see, we have a new and a living hope. It's not, not just a hope, not, not just something that we, we long for, not, not just something we wish for. This is something that is living. It, it's, it's within us. It, it's, it's vibrant. It's vital. It's an active hope. And then in uh, chapter 3, verse 15, he said, But in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Um, subjectively, you see that living hope uh, is within us, but of course objectively, it isn't a hope that's in ourselves, is it? We read there in uh, 1 verse 20, He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believed our believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. So you see, our hope, it's not in ourselves, it's in God. It's in what he's done, it's in what he would do. And then in uh, chapter 1, verse 13, he said, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Hope is not in ourselves. It's focused on Jesus. And it looks for his return. So may we all really be aware of that hope that we have for eternity. And I've just realised I missed out a point. <laughs> so just skipping back. Very briefly, we are to share the gospel as well. In 1 Peter 3, verse 15, uh, Peter said, But in your hearts, honour Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defence to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. What's the reason for the hope that is in you? It's the gospel, isn't it? And notice we are to always be prepared to share the gospel. Why? Because people need to hear it. They always need to hear it. You know, there's never a time when, oh, it can wait. It's not appropriate. There's always a need for people to hear the gospel. So we are to be always ready, always prepared to share the gospel. And notice too, um, we're also to be ready to share it with anyone. Why? Well, because everyone needs to hear it. There's no one who doesn't need the gospel. So we're never in a sort of quandary, you know, no, does this person need to hear the gospel or can I, can I skip this time? It's ridiculous, isn't it? They need it. So we are to share it with anyone, everyone. 